Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast on Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Just a reminder that On Becoming is on Twitter at On Becoming Pod and Instagram at On Becoming Podcast. Our email address is onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any comments or suggestions, please send them our way. If you find that the podcast is helpful to your own journey of becoming, consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks to those of you who subscribed or followed us, to those who've written, and to those who've decided to support us. We are just about to the place where we are at our first anniversary. In the previous episode, I spoke about the way in which the philosopher Hans Georg Gadamer changed my life in regard to tradition. I spoke about the ways each of us is affected by beliefs and the environment into which we are born. In my case, it meant multiple environments, even during just my years growing up. Then I went off to study in Belgium and Germany and now live in Scotland. I mentioned the incredibly important role your mother tongue also plays. I also talked about the way a piece of art exists. It's not just paint on canvas. It's about the work's relation to the artistic tradition in general and then more specifically, how the work is made available, not just in museums or concert calls, but in many other ways, such as television programs and films. For a long time, aestheticians, people who study or think about art, were pretty snobby of what they were willing to consider as art. I mentioned that fact, that aestheticians usually assumed that only classical music was really good enough to count as music. There were actually classical music radio stations that referred to themselves as good music stations. Eventually, Americans started to recognize that jazz was good enough to count as real or serious music, though they actually needed help from the Europeans who had recognized the value of jazz long before people in the United States ever started to do so. But the most interesting musicologist I've ever read, his name is Christopher Small, he argues in a book titled Music of the Common Tongue, published back in 1987. This guy was way, way ahead of his time. He basically argues that the most important music of the 20th century is not classical music at all. Instead, he points out that the most important musical developments were in forms of music created by African Americans and the African diaspora. Jazz is a part of this, of course, but he's also thinking about the blues, rock, reggae, hip-hop, punk, calypso, and country-western music. His thesis is that these forms arise, and now I'm quoting from him, from the collision in America, that is to say, North, Central, and South America, during and after the times of slavery, between two great musical cultures, perhaps one should say groups of cultures, that of Europe and that of Africa, a tradition which partakes of the nature of both, but is not the same as either. I'm glad he added the addendum, groups of cultures, since neither Europe nor Africa are homogeneous. However, when you stack all of these hybrid traditions together, you realize that they constitute a far more important musical legacy than all the classical music works composed in the 20th century. I think he's completely correct there. But I have another reason for introducing this point, namely that these traditions have merged to form something that neither would likely have produced on their own. 
If you'd like an example, consider the interaction in New Orleans around the turn of the 20th century, which is detailed in David Ackie's book, Jazz Cultures. Although the history of jazz has usually been written in terms of black and white, there are at least three racial identities early on in jazz. It's this third category, creoles of color, or genre de couleur, that undermines the binary of racial opposition. Whereas Creole musicians were often more familiar with the European musical tradition and thus better at reading music, black musicians were better at improvising. As Creoles and blacks were allowed to integrate beginning in the 1890s, they began to influence one another musically, the result being a kind of musical Creolization. Creole culture serves as a metaphor for understanding the development of jazz. Musically, Creoles occupied a space somewhere between the white European and African-American music, and that in-betweenness helped open a space for white musicians. What is jazz? The people who've tried to answer that question suggest that it's a mixture of black spirituals, ragtime, European folk music, particularly Scottish music, classical music, and even opera. For instance, in an interview, Louis Armstrong sings the beginning of Serenade from Rombach's opera, The Student Prince, and then he says, that's jazz. That's the way I look at it. Anything you can express to the public is jazz. Now, that's probably too inclusive a definition, but I hope you see the point that anything new is almost always a reworking or a different interpretation of what already exists. The more you learn about a group's tradition, the better you're able to understand it. And of course, such understanding about one's own tradition or other traditions is also important because it enables you to ask questions like, why do we think this way? The answer may well be because, well, it's the right way to think, right as in better than the alternative ways of thinking. But the answer, of course, could also be unsettling since when you start to realize that this may not be the best way to think about a given object or a subject, you are forced to rethink what you've thought before. The point is that tradition surrounds us and we are constantly in dialogue with it. Note that I didn't say some people are in dialogue with it. You don't need to recognize that you're in dialogue with tradition for that to be the case. Of course, once you start to discover how much you owe to tradition, then you start to have a much healthier respect for it. Traditions can be bad or good. However, most of the time, they are both good in some ways and bad in others. As a tradition, Christianity has given us terrible wars, the Inquisition, and much else to lament. But it's also given us hospitals, the recognition that all human beings have equal value, something that's very different, say, from what the ancient Greeks thought, and many other good things, not least of which are the teachings of Jesus. However, what people don't often realize is that Christianity, for good or for ill, is the most fundamental influence on Western culture, period. When Nietzsche proclaims the death of God, he sees this thought as both liberating and also really scary. Nietzsche realizes that Christianity is so central to Western thought that its demise could lead to all kinds of problems, the biggest of them being the problem of what could take its place. Traditions often come in the form of presuppositions or prejudices. One of the interesting things Gadamer does is to rehabilitate the notion of prejudice. 
In both German and English, the word is taken to be something bad. But Gadamer reminds us that without presuppositions, which is another way of terming prejudices, we'd never be able to do anything. You've downloaded this podcast thinking that I'd be talking about a philosopher. Turns out that presupposition or prejudice has turned out to be correct. Maybe you had other presuppositions about this episode that are now either being confirmed or proving to be not quite right. We're always in this position of having prejudices, literally, judgments made in advance. Always in this position of those judgments being either confirmed or confronted. Gottemer insists that presuppositions must be questioned, but he also recognizes that you could never question them all at once, since you need them in order to question them. Moreover, your questioning of certain prejudices will always be in light of other prejudices. Put otherwise, we are constantly using tradition to argue for and against tradition. As I've long said, when you reach adolescence and begin to question things your parents or teachers or pastors have taught you, you are usually using something that they taught you to question something else that they taught you. When I question beliefs common to evangelicals, I do so within the broader tradition of Christianity. Without that broad tradition, it would be much more difficult to question evangelicals, since as a religious group, they claim that they have the truth, meaning that any disagreement is largely viewed as some kind of heresy. For me, getting out of evangelical circles was very helpful because I could learn about and come to appreciate various other ways of being a Christian. One of the things that I realized early on when I started attending an Episcopal church is that Episcopalians tend to talk about Jesus a whole lot more than evangelicals do. I also came to see that the way Episcopal services were set up, with an Old Testament lesson, a psalm, a New Testament lesson, and a passage from one of the Gospels, meant that one would hear far more scripture being read than one would in an evangelical church. Given how much evangelicals put emphasis on the Bible, you'd probably expect that it would be the other way around. And that would be an example of a prejudice that turns out to be wrong. In the previous episode, I mentioned that I read a text describing how music is composed and then performed. It was the first major text that I had ever read on that topic. Long before I finished it, I started to have questions. In the previous episode, I also talked about the fact that so much of our relation to the world is by our intuitive or right brain. Let me point out that my reading of this text by, his name is Ingarden, you don't need to remember that, left me feeling that something just wasn't right. The further I went in the book, the more I had the sense that his account was problematic. But my objections to what he was saying were really coming from my right brain. Intuitively, I had the sense that there was something wrong, but I needed to work it out by way of my left brain. In effect, I had certain objections to what I was reading that I needed to put into an argument. One of the reasons I've spent so much time talking about intuition is that it basically makes most of us who we are. Nietzsche makes the point that so much of our interaction with the world is done intuitively that we might even start to ask, To what extent is conscious reason even necessary? Could we simply get by without it? 
Well, we couldn't get by without it and still accomplish the technological advances that have so changed our lives. However, it is relatively common, even in scientific work, that someone first gets an intuitive sense about something and then tries to see if that sense can be validated by experimentation. No one does random scientific experiments. You first have to think on the basis of what we call reason or on the basis of what we call intuition that there might be something going on there worth investigating. To be honest, I find that the germ or genesis of work that I do usually starts out in an intuitive form. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I was listening to a paper given by a colleague, and at a certain point it occurred to me that he was operating with a major assumption that was neither stated nor defended. Indeed, when I ventured to make the point that this assumption was in no way obviously true, my comment was basically just dismissed. The person giving the paper simply couldn't see that something might be amiss. After that, I had the experience that most of my comments in our departmental colloquium were simply dismissed as the continental objection, which meant that no response was necessary. To say that I felt that this was rude and uncharitable is unnecessary to say. But over time, I came to see that the kinds of questions I'm willing to ask are ones that go very deep and often put certain prejudices into significant question. To give you a different example, my reading of Nietzsche is problematic for two kinds of people. On the one hand, those who self-identify as atheists or agnostics often find support for such a view in Nietzsche. Indeed, many people simply think of Nietzsche as an atheist, and that's kind of the end of the whole matter. But when I read Nietzsche, who says things like he's baptized his philosophy in the name of Dionysus, the ancient Greek god, and that there are two religious types, the crucified versus Dionysus, it's hard to say that he's simply left religion behind. On the other hand, when I point out that Nietzsche ultimately remains remarkably close to the German pietism that he imbibed as a child, the religious conservatives start to get very nervous. I presented a paper on this very point to a group of evangelicals. One of the people in the group, someone who is particularly perceptive and also willing to say certain things out loud that other people might be too afraid to say. He responded to my presentation by saying, so Nietzsche is like a distant relative, which I thought was exactly the right way to put it. Nietzsche very explicitly says that only the moral God has died. And then Jean-Luc Marion comes along and points out that the God who's died in Nietzsche's thought was only an idol that deserved to die. My argument about Nietzsche is that he's much closer to Christianity than even he realizes. But when I was first writing about Nietzsche, I couldn't see that point yet. It took me a while. But after realizing that Christianity is so basic, so pervasive in Western thought, it became obvious that Nietzsche is going to be Christian in many ways, even when he's saying pretty nasty things about Christianity. Though, to be honest, you have to keep in mind that most of the nasty things he says about Christianity are, alas, more or less correct. But I want to move to a point that in some ways sums up the entirety of truth and method. Gadamer makes the following statement, which I think is so important to understand. The truth of experience always implies an orientation toward new experience. This is why a person who is called experienced has 
becomes so not only through his experiences, but is also open to new experiences. The consummation of his experience, the perfection that we call being experienced, does not consist in the fact that someone already knows everything and knows better than anyone else. Rather, the experienced person proves to be, on the contrary, someone who is radically undogmatic, who because of the many experiences he has had and the knowledge he has drawn from them is particularly well equipped to have new experiences and to learn from them. The dialectic of experience has its proper fulfillment not in definitive knowledge, but in the openness to experience that is made possible by experience itself. There's so much going on in this passage. The first thing to point out is simply this. When Gautamer's talking about the radically undogmatic person, it turns out he's talking about himself. I can say that because I got to know Gautamer and was able to watch him think in real time. While I met him at age 89, I didn't begin working with him until he was 90. Now, here's the deal. At that point in time, Gautamer was clearly the most important living German philosopher. He published Truth and Method in 1960 and then lived on to 2002. He, he lived to be 102 years old. You would think that Gautamer, who was actually given a parade by the city of Bonn, then the capital of West Germany, would have thought that he already knew everything. But no, he proved to be radically undogmatic in actual practice. At one point, I suggested to him that reading and interpreting a text is very similar to what jazz musicians do. His immediate response was, oh no, that's incorrect. But then when I explained what we as jazz musicians actually do, he came around to thinking differently. Most of us play from tunes, many of which are called jazz standards. The goal of a performance in jazz is to respect the music, not by playing it exactly, but by doing something with it. Most jazz performances have great respect for jazz standards and want to play them in the spirit in which they are written. Once I finished that explanation, Gautamer responded with something like, well, if that's what they do, then yes, that's the kind of interpretation I'm talking about. We were speaking German at the time, so I don't really remember the exact wording. In other words, Gautamer doesn't think of interpretation as mere repetition. It's always more than that, even when the interpreter is merely trying to be as true to the text as possible. I should add here that in the same way that Husserl speaks of a bow or unbuilding, and Derrida speaks of deconstruction, my word for describing the interpretational process is improvisation. Improvisation is always about working with the tradition. Jazz musicians have great respect for the tradition, and they are less likely to think crazy things like this interpretation is totally new, because they realize that they're building on and carrying on a tradition. Put otherwise, no interpretation is possible without improvisation. And tradition thrives not on faithful reproduction, but faithful improvisation. I've often likened the idea of faithful reduction to the person in the parable who's given just one talent and chooses to bury it in the ground rather than use it in a creative way like the other two people do in the parable. 
But Gadamer also makes the point that it's the experienced person who is able to deal with new experience. He points out that the experienced person isn't the person who thinks he already knows and thus needs no further enlightenment. It's exactly the other way around. You could put this in terms of the Dunning-Kruger effect, that those who know less are often quite confident regarding what they know, whereas those who are smarter are able to see that they don't know many things. I do realize that making the transitions of this way of thinking might be a little unsettling at first. When I was explaining this idea of being radically undogmatic to a colleague, he asked, how would you work that out in terms of the Trinity? My response was pretty simple. The formulation of the Trinity in Christian thought is highly dependent upon Aristotelian metaphysics. But the idea that the Trinity could only be, or even should only be interpreted in this way, is hardly self-evident. A radically undogmatic way of thinking about the Trinity is that, while Aristotelian metaphysics may have been helpful for understanding this concept, it's entirely possible to imagine metaphysics developing in a way in which a new and different way of thinking about the Trinity could emerge. If you're a dogmatic person, then you'll likely respond that this issue has been settled and no further discussion is either necessary or desirable. But how could you know that in advance? You'd be operating with the presupposition that you're holding, unfortunately, quite dogmatically. But that means no theological development on such a point would ever be possible. Gadamer thinks that taking the tradition seriously is a good thing, largely because we wouldn't have the kind of knowledge and understanding that we have apart from a tradition. But tradition is always alive and developing. Just to be clear, if Gadamer's right, then the folks who say that they are just interpreting the U.S. Constitution as originalist don't really understand what they're doing. You can try to come to what you think might have been the thought process behind any clause in the U.S. Constitution, but trying to argue for that is really kind of a hopeless task. We don't have access to authors' thoughts, so the best we can do is make sense of what they've written. The idea that you could transport yourself into the time of the writing of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution is just as irrational as the idea that you could transform yourself into a first-century follower of Jesus. Derrida says that deconstruction happens, quite apart from anyone wanting to deconstruct something. My response would be that improvisation also happens even when we aren't attempting to improvise, because improvisation is just what human beings do. Have you ever thought about the fact that the worlds and beings and science fiction are always some variation of our own experience? There isn't really anything new. You just have reworking of the ways that human beings already relate to the world and to themselves. Perhaps it's clear that coming to understand interpretation in a Gadamerian way makes you think very differently about ancient texts and even modern ones. The goal of figuring out what an author was thinking is impossible. All we have access to is what he or she actually wrote. And our interpretation is going to be limited by how well the author was able to make himself or herself clear. Such a realization could leave one a little uneasy, since the usual evangelical alternative is the fervent belief that we can somehow get into Paul's mind or those of the gospel writers. Once such a goal is off the table as a possibility, we're forced to realize that interpretation always requires bringing ourselves to whatever things we're trying to understand. 
Gadamer's position is freeing in important ways, but yes, that freedom could leave one a little unsettled. Many of us long for fixed and definite boundaries. But if Gadamer's right, then such wishes are simply out of place. To interpret something is to be an agent who acknowledges that his or her interpretation is contextual. I first taught Gadamer in the fall of 1989. Since I had been so deeply influenced by him, I thought, yeah, I think students will find him helpful too. But I had absolutely no idea of just how much they would resonate with what he says. I may have mentioned before that the goal of phenomenology is to give a description that reflects actual practice. My book on improvisation was designed as a phenomenology of what it means to compose, perform, and improvise. I argue that improvisation is at work in all uh, sorts of music, and there was no way to avoid it. If you're a musician and you read such a text, the proof of the pudding is recognition, as in, yes, that sounds like what it is I'm doing as a musician, or no, that doesn't sound quite right. As with any phenomenology, you can always disagree, but then the onus is on you to provide an alternative phenomenology that corrects what you consider to be mistakes or inaccuracies. What I discovered in that first seminar in Gadamer was that students were coming to see that Gadamer's description was accurate. Once you realize that simply repeating what the text says doesn't count as interpretation, you realize that texts only exist in this in-between space of improvisation. A text is, in one sense, simply ink blotches on pieces of paper or electronic symbols. It is the medium for communicating from one person to another. It works because human beings are linguistic creatures. Another way of putting this is to say that a text only comes into full being in the process of being read, in the same way that a musical score is something like a recipe for making music rather than the music itself. The other way in which students responded was much more personal. I still remember one student who said that reading Gadamer had made him more polite to other people. In one sense, that result should be expected. If you no longer think of yourself as the one who has to have all the answers and are no longer in the business of constructing a heavy-duty edifice to protect your world of thought, then you are much better able to be open to other viewpoints. You might still decide that your own viewpoint is right, but it's usually a good thing to realize that the people who disagree with you are not just stupid and ignorant. To be sure, there are people who fit that description, but it's not merely more charitable to come to this conclusion, but also better for you. You might just learn something that you don't already know. And there we're back to the Socratic problem that only in being willing to say that you don't already know are you able to grow and learn. But there's a further point here. One of the things that Gadamer says about conversations, he has absolutely exquisite things to say about genuine conversations, is that rather than engage in them to prove you are correct and show that the other person is stupid or ignorant, it's much more helpful, if you want to grow as a person, to take their viewpoint seriously. Here's how Gadamer puts this. The art of dialectic is not the art of being able to win every argument. 
On the contrary, it is possible that someone practicing the art of dialect, that is, the art of questioning and seeking truth, comes off worse in the argument in the eyes of those listening to it. As the art of asking questions, dialectic proves its value because only the person who knows how to ask questions is able to persist in his questioning, which involves being able to preserve his orientation toward openness. The art of questioning is the art of questioning even further, that is, the art of thinking. It is called dialectic because it is the art of conducting a real dialogue. Do you see how this changes the entire dynamic the goal isn't to prove that you're superior. Instead, the goal is to get at the truth. Further down the same page, Gadamer says the following. It requires that one does not try to argue the other person down, but that one really considers the weight of the other's opinion. Hence, it is the art of testing. But the art of testing is the art of questioning. For we've seen that to question means to lay open to place in the open. As against the fixity of opinions, questioning makes the object and all its possibilities fluid. A person skilled in the art of questioning is a person who can prevent questions from being suppressed by the dominant opinion. A person who possesses this art will himself search for everything in favor of an opinion. Dialectic consists not in trying to discover the weakness of what is said, but in bringing out its real strength. It's not the art of arguing, which can make a strong case out of a weak one, but the art of thinking, which can strengthen objections by referring to the subject matter. If you know anything about how philosophy usually works, you realize that much philosophy consists of building an intellectual edifice and then making sure one has all the possible arguments out there covered with responses. If you're into setting up your own little position as the one everyone should adopt, you won't be able to recognize that other people who think differently from you might just well be correct. In short, you're really in the business of setting up your own view as the right one. But Gadamer is suggesting something so fundamentally different from that. He's saying that if you want to pursue truth, you'll need to listen to other viewpoints and try as hard as possible to see the truth of those viewpoints rather than to dismiss them. You can see what such a person looks like from what Gadamer says in the last paragraph of the afterword of the text. He says this, But I will stop here. The ongoing dialogue permits no final conclusion. It would be a poor hermeneuticist who thought he could or had to have the last word. That's all for today's episode. If you found this episode helpful or interesting, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app. The username for both is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Or just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Alice Benson, and I hope you'll join us next week.